Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know that you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there, this is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello everybody, how are you doing? I am your host, I am your host, Mr. Veda Hedgeman of Is He a Real One Radio? And I wanna thank you so much in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for joining in with us today. Now, I am so excited about today's episode. I have a very special guest, a very good friend of mine, um, a big brother of mine by the name of Sam Shamoon. Now, he is a great teacher. He is a great debater. He is a great communicator. And he has a lot of works um, in, the, in the debate field and a lot of articles, you know, as it relates to having a Christian response against Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and other, uh, you know, false doctrines and heretical cults. Now, we planned on meeting today, but the original plan was for us, for me to facilitate a dialogue between he and another teacher who has different views um, on, um, on the triune God. So we had to do a little bit of, of pivoting, so we're still meeting today. So what we will do, uh, just so you all know, um, is we will be discussing the Trinity, so on Is Here Ruin Radio, we will be discussing is the Trinity a real one? So we'll just go over some of that stuff. And if we have enough time, if Sam doesn't have to go, you know, we will uh, throw a couple of oneness objections at him to see how uh, he responds and teaches on that. So with that said, Sam, how are you doing? What would you like to say about well, yourself? Before I do that, I just want to say praise the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I beseech the Father that he sanctify us by his spirit, purify us in the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, his beloved Son. Anoint us by his spirit to speak truth without error and sanctify our motives to do it for the glory and praise and love and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal Son, and not for the praise of man. And save us from error and stammering. We love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, thank you. Thank you for those kind words, brother. And I'm not trying to be humble, but they're undeserved. Uh, the only thing I think you, you were right on is that I'm big, but I hope you meant that in a good way. Because <laughs> I'm trying to lose weight. So, man, I'm trying to get my muscle back, lose weight. So you're kind of sensitive when you say that, throwing them words big around, man. <laughs> yeah, be careful when you say big, man, homeboy. What's up, bro? Hey, homie, homie, say. don't play that. Yeah. <laughs> No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> so, Lord of God. So as you said, I, I have been doing apologetics and <clears throat> it's not because I'm qualified, but because the Holy Spirit qualifies us, right? Amen. And I know it's a cliche people hear, but it's absolutely true. The Holy Spirit takes those who are considered marginalized, those who are broken, those who have issues, and he sanctifies them and heals them to make them more like Jesus and fills them to be used for the glory of Jesus Christ. And People who have been following me know I have my own issues. I have my own struggles, things of the flesh, impatience, anger that I'm asking God to save me from. And until he does, if the spirit is pleased to use me in spite of my imperfections, I want to be glorifying Jesus Christ and living for Jesus until I die. And I know that's your desire. And may the Holy Spirit use you and bless you and your loved ones. 
that we keep glorifying Jesus and he increases in us in Jesus' name. So that's what I've been doing since 1999, by the way, full-time ministry in 1999. Uh, I started with answering Islam. Remember, 1999, there, were, there wasn't YouTube. The internet was just catching on. So the rebuttals were written rebuttals. So that's why if you go to answeringislam.net, you'll find some of the articles are like 30 pages, 40 pages. People don't read 30, hmm. 40 pages anymore. So we have to now condense it and or churn out YouTube videos, summing up the material, but it's a gold mine. It's still around. And I highly encourage people to go to answeringislam.net as well as my blog, answeringislamblog.wordpress.com because I want you to use the material for the glory of Jesus. And I don't want people to think it's just Islam. Right. Over 90% of the material that we produce, I produce, has to do with core doctrines of the Christian faith that will help you across the board. Even with Joe's witnesses or Unitarians, such as the Trinity, deity of Christ, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. So don't and, let the title Islam mislead you. Yeah, and my name is Beta Hesman of Isia Ruin Radio, and I approve that message. Answeringislam.org is a great resource. So let's get into it. Let's talk about yes, is the Trinity a real one? Let's talk about that. So first of all, let's start off with uh, you know, with the basic. What it, with, with the basics? What is the Trinity, and why is it important to Christian yes. teaching? Yeah, and it's very important that people understand what we're not saying. We're not saying that the word Trinity is in the Bible or the precise doctrinal formulation can be found in the Bible. And, and let me qualify that because people think that, oh, you say, see, you said the Trinity is not in the Bible. No, that's not what I said. What I'm saying is when you talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, you're talking about holy men, holy servants of Jesus Christ, holy women of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries, trying their best to most accurately describe and articulate what the Bible teaches okay. in language that would make sense. So if someone would press me to, and say, show me where it says one being and three persons, because that's the language we use. I can't show you that. But the terminology is faithful to scripture. So the issue is the doctrine of the Trinity, the formulation of it, is it faithful to scripture? Absolutely. If you're honest to God, honest to scripture, and you read it contextually, and you read it <clears throat> accurately, and do not seek to impose your tradition into the text, there's no way you'll walk away with an understanding that God is other than triune. So now let me explain what we mean by the Trinity, even the term itself, tri-unity, tri-three unity. So what do we mean? We believe that the Bible teaches, and we know the Bible is God's word, the word of the true God preserved as a faithful witness to who he is and what he desires of us. We believe that the one true God, <clears throat> the one God who is uncreated, beginningless, timeless, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the savior of all things. That one God, according to scripture, happens to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, ironically, modalists would agree, but the way they would explain the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit differs from the way we explain it. What we believe is that the Bible teaches the Father is this one God, the Son is this one God, the Holy Spirit is this one God. But at the same time, we find in Scripture, the Father is not the Son. Mm -hmm. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are different and distinct. And because they're different and distinct, they are in communion with one another, in fellowship with one another. They love and adore one another, and they glorify the other. So now, how do we best articulate that? If there's only one God, and the Father is that God, the Son is that God, the Spirit is that God, but they're not the same self, meaning the Father is not the Son, He's not the Spirit. 
which is why they love one another, they adore one another, they glorify one another. The best way of articulating that is to say the existence of God, what we call the being of God, that which makes God, God is one, but there are three eternal relationships that exist as that one God. Now, I, I use the term relationship, but what you'll find in Trinitarian discussions is the term person. But that needs to be explained as well, because for the uninitiated, the untaught, when you say person, the first thing that comes to a person's mind is a flesh and blood, mm -hmm. physical, temporal being, right? Right. Person. That's not how we're using the term. When okay. I say the father is a person, I mean that the, the father has a will, has desires, has emotions, has a mind, cognition, meaning he has awareness. He, he is aware that he exists. And he's aware that he exists as God. And he's aware that others exist. So by the term person, I'm not saying the father is a physical bodily entity that's bound to time, space, and place like you and me. That's not how we're using the term person. Okay. By person, we mean the father speaks, can be spoken to. The father has a mind. He is aware that he is God. Awareness. He has a will. He has emotions. That same definition applies to the son and spirit. So that's what we mean by three persons one being that's basically what we're saying mm -hmm. in order to best capture what the bible teaches and like i said if you're going to be honest to scripture and let scripture speak and not assume what god can and cannot be and let god reveal himself right and define himself then the only conclusion that you can come to is that the trinity is biblical so we can go into the evidence if you want but that's a real quick definition if you need further clarification ask me that's awesome that's awesome man and, and i love how when you said that when, when you were explaining that, Sam, how you said, okay, well, if the Father isn't the Son and the Son, and Son isn't the Holy Spirit, the Father isn't the Holy Spirit, how do we determine it? Because I'm hoping that we can get to that yes. uh, because, the, because there is a teaching, you know, that many will call oneness theology, you know, that, uh, that will disagree um, with, with that assertion. So hopefully we have a little bit of time so we can at least touch on that. Yes. Now, 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 before we get there, though, you know, I kind of want to uh, talk to you, you about some of the people who, who won't go the oneness theology approach, but they will argue against the Trinity because they'll say that uh, Jesus uh, isn't God, you know? Yes. So, yes. so how do we interpret from scripture that Jesus is God? You know, what are, yeah. uh, I have at least one scripture I'd like to ask you too, but what are some sure. of the things that come to your mind when you hear that? We also have to affirm, which didn't come up because we're talking about the Trinity, that Jesus is also truly human. He's a man. Most objections against Jesus being God centers on the fact that the Bible teaches he's truly human. He was born. He was born as a baby, right. born to his virgin mother, because we affirm the virgin conception birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he experienced genuine human limitations with the exception of sin. So the Bible talk about he got tired. He needed to sleep. He grew in wisdom and stature and, and he experienced pain and could die. Things that are only true of human beings. Meaning when I say humans, obviously even animals die, but you get the point what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So most objections against the deity of Christ will center on the fact that he's truly human, which we don't deny, or that he's distinguished from the father. There are places in which the Bible talk about God sending the son or that Jesus is the son of God or that he submits to God. Because in those passages, the term God refers to the father of Jesus. And so most people who don't believe that Jesus is God will say, because he's distinct, distinguished from God, then he can't be God. No, 
because there God means the father. And they're right, because he's distinguished from the father, he can't be the father, but it doesn't mean he can't be God. I'll give you a helpful analogy, one that works because God uses mankind to illustrate the plurality of God to some extent. Now I wanna be clear. Okay. I'm not saying that mankind is identical to God. There's nothing in creation that's identical to the way God exists, right? Okay. Yes, sir. From beginning again, God says, there's no one who's my equal. You can't compare me to anything. I'm higher than you, and my ways are past finding out. We can go through those passages. But there are things that are <clears throat> helpful illustrations, analogies to God, but not identical to God, right? So they're, they're creatures that <clears throat> reflect God to some extent, and the creature that most reflects God happens to be human beings. We're the crown of his creation. And that's a biblical teaching. Now, right. why am I using that as an illustration? Because I want you to do me a favor. In most translations, they tend to translate the word as opposed to transliterate. So you don't see the significance of the point. Now, if you don't mind, brother, if you can open up a King James Bible. Okay. Got it with you? Just go to King James. Uh-huh. Go to Genesis 5. And I want you to read verses 1 or 2. Okay. Genesis 5, and I'm going to read 1 and 2, two. Mm -hmm. from the King James Version. And it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Notice them is male and female too, right? Yes. But what was their name? The name of the male and well, female he, was what? He called their, called their name Adam. So wait, he was Adam? Hu Humanity is Adam. But here it says male and female. Which male and female? It's not about the first parents. Because in verse 3, it talks about Adam fathering a son named Seth. Right. So male and female refers to here, who here in its historical context? In its historical context, that's Adam and Eve. So Eve is called Adam? No. Yeah, you just read it, bro. Read it again, no. man. It's no, right Eve, Eve Eve is called like mankind. He no, created she's them. she's called Adam. Read the text. It's right there. Right. But that's what, no, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing yeah. with you. So Eve is called Adam? Yes. But she's married to Adam? Yes. So Eve is Adam and she's with Adam? Yes. Just like Jesus is God who's with God? Yes. Thank you. That's my point. <laughs> you get right, my point? No, I, I, I get it. I, I get it, yeah. but let's try to, let's try to break that down a little it, bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What I'm saying is you have here two persons, human persons are also two human beings, but they possess a common name, Adam. The Hebrew says the male and female are called Adam. Now, why are they called Adam? Because both the male and female, Adam and his spouse, Eve, possess the nature of man, humanity, because the Hebrew word Adam means mankind or humanity. Yes. So Eve is just as much Adam as her male husband but she's not the Adam that she's married to. So here she is. She's the wife of Adam, but she is Adam in essence, meaning because male and female are both human, right? they possess the common essence of humanity. They can be both called Adam, though they're not the same person. They're not, they're not the same being. So you could say that at the beginning of creation, there was Eve and Eve was with Adam and Eve was Adam. Right. An echo of John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, word. and the Word was, was with God, with and the Word, and was, word God. was God. So my point is, you can have Jesus being God and distinguished from God, 
Because when you say Jesus is God, you're saying that he possesses the essence of God. And when you say that he is with God, you're saying he's with the Father. Like Eve can be Adam in nature and be married to a person called Adam. Right. Right. That's beautiful. And, and that's why I gave them as an illustration, because notice how it began. They were created in the likeness of God, meaning humanity was created in such a way to reflect the fact that God is a community of distinct persons who possess the same essence and who are in fellowship. Like Adam is a community of distinct human beings who possess the same essence and are in fellowship. Yes. That's what you're supposed to see. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, can, can you... Can, can you uh, teach us a little bit about John uh, chapter eight and I'm going to go 56 to 59. Yes. Now, yes. I, now I know this is a popular verse, you know, and, you know, people often use this to, uh, to demonstrate the deity of Jesus, but yes. sometimes, but sometimes, you know, like yeah. the mark is sort of missed a little bit, you know, so I'm going to read uh, 56 yeah. through 59 in John eight. And I would like you to tell us yeah. why this is uh, a good representation of Jesus's uh claim to deity and i'm reading and uh, is esv fine you yeah you can uh, yeah now you can go ahead for to make it a little easier for those whose mother tongue may not be english or old english may be hard because i want them to get the point i don't want them to get lost right, right? okay so john 8 56 to 59 says says your father abraham this is jesus talking y'all your yes. father abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad so the Jews said to him you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. What's that saying? What's going okay, on? Okay, now, before I even comment on 56, the actual context of this particular section starts way earlier. It actually starts in verse 30, but for the sake of brevity, for the sake of time, before I go unpack it, I want you to see, because these are the Jews that end up trying to kill Jesus. But mm. if you go earlier in the context, the Jews that tried to kill him were those who claimed to believe in him. Because right. if you go to John 8, 30, it says that there were some who believed, but then Jesus was going to expose their hearts because you know what's in their hearts. He's going to say, you think you believe, but you don't. Because deep right. down in, in, inside, you don't have true faith. It is a said faith. It's a dead faith that is going to manifest itself in that you're going to want to kill me by the time this conversation is over because you don't truly believe. You're not truly my disciples. You don't truly abide in my word. Now, why is that important? Because in John 8, I want you to start at John 8. I want you to read 39 and 40. Then we'll go back to 56, explain what Jesus meant. John 8, 39 and 40, he's going to convince these Jews, though you are physically descendants of Abraham, you are not truly his spiritual heirs. Right. Because you don't believe like him and you don't act like him. So notice what he says in John 8, 39 to 40. All right. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you will be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So wait, he says, here's the proof that you have nothing to do with Abraham. You're trying to kill me a man who spoke the truth to you that he heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham did not try to do this. Now, at first glance, people just brush over this and don't understand the implication. He is saying, Abraham didn't try to do what you're trying to do. So what are they trying to do? Kill him, right? 
Yeah. But he said, Abraham didn't try to kill me. Okay. But now the first question that should arise in a person's mind is, when Jesus said this, Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years, right? right? Right. Okay. What do you mean Abraham didn't try to kill you? Abraham's been dead for 2,000 years. And how are you using that as proof that we don't truly belong to him? Because unlike Abraham, we are trying to kill you. And then he explains that though Abraham's been dead for 2,000 years, I actually personally met him. And when I met him, his reaction was different than yours. Ooh, come on. Because now, now I'm picking up in John 8.56. Now in 8.56, <laughs> it makes sense, right? Right. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Before, before, before we even get there, I, I want to make sure people know what Sam just said. So, and, and, is in exegeting this scripture. So Jesus is saying, look, Abraham saw me. Abraham ain't here in 30 AD, whatever year this is, right here physically, like me and you are, okay? This was some time ago where y'all weren't even here. Abraham saw me, and he wasn't having the response to me that you all are having right now. Now, mind you, mind you, uh, Sam is going to continue to exegete and, and teach. Now, although there are people and there are heretics who will say what well, Jesus wasn't claiming to be God when he said all of these things, always remember, why did these Jews keep getting mad when Jesus would say these type of things? But I'm not the teacher in this hour. Sam is. I just wanted to highlight that one point. Yeah, and so they get it. Yeah. We so, want to make sure uh, they get it. That's the point. Right. So now he's going to say, now, look, you're trying to kill me because you're angry and you hate me. Now, let me show you how Abraham reacted. Now, pick it up in John 8, 56. Right. So going back to 56, it says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. See, unlike you, you're angry, you hate me, you want to kill me. He was happy to see me. Now, Jesus's words can mean not that he saw Abraham face to face, that Abraham was given revelation and a vision of the coming Messiah. And when he saw it, he got elated. Or it can mean that he saw Jesus face to face. And when he saw Jesus, he was elated to see the God who exists and who loves him, or both. In other words, it can mean both. Now, I do believe Abraham was given revelation of the coming Messiah. So that's true. He did see the coming of the Messiah as his Redeemer and Savior, and he hoped in that. But Jesus is obviously saying much more than that. It's not just he saw the future. He saw me face to face. And how do I know that's what Jesus meant? Because that's how the Jews understood him in 57. You are not yet 50 years old, yet you have seen Abraham. So they got it. Wait. For you right. to know Abraham's reaction, for you to know that's how Abraham reacted, that means you must have seen Abraham and saw his reaction. How's that possible? You're not yet 50 years old. But now notice what Jesus did not do. He didn't correct them and say, you guys don't get it. That's not what I'm saying. He says, yeah, you got it, but here's where you're, you're wrong. Don't let my physical appearance mislead you. I'm much more than 50. Because unlike your father Abraham who came into being, I've always been. That's what he means in John 8, 58. In John 8, 58, what Jesus is saying is, unlike Abraham who came into being, because literally it's prin, right? Abraham, genestai. Literally, and I'm trying to praise people the Greek. It's before Abraham came into being, I am. What's his point? Meaning that unlike Abraham as a creature, I am existence. I've always been and will always be. So I was there even before he was alive. I was there when he's alive, and I'm still here now that he's dead. So in saying that he's the I am, he's saying I'm the eternally existing one, and I have seen him 
because I was there before he was created. I was there when he was created. And I'm long, I've been there long after he's dead. That's where they freaked out because they understood he's claiming to be the eternal one, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. no, go ahead, brother. You want to say something? Oh, I was just going to ask you, would you say that this is a, a moment where Jesus was also showing his extraordinary wit, like he's one of the greatest rappers of all time or something, yeah. and, kind, and kind of having a double entendre? Because I love how you, when you just explained this, you didn't immediately go to the Old Testament, you know, when the Lord said, yeah. I am, you know, so, so and Jesus. there's a reason why. There's a reason right. why I didn't do that, but go ahead. You want me to comment or you wanted to make comment? Oh, oh, well, I was just talking about the, how, although, although that, that there is that, uh, that, that comparison there, it's sort of like a double entendre. If you do want to point it out, it's important to point out what you pointed out first, because Jesus said before Abraham was, I existed before Abraham was, I was there. And in a, and, a, and would you say in like a, in, and I use rappers because rappers like to use metaphors and, yeah, and sure. analogies. It also is that comparison to the Old Testament when the Lord said, yeah. I am. The reason why I didn't go there is because a sharp anti-Trinitarian or even someone who's a Trinitarian will tell you that Exodus 3.14, because that's what you're referring to. Yeah. The Hebrew phrase does not necessarily translate as I am. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Ehyeh. In fact, if you have an ESV, I want you to turn Exodus 3.14. Usually the translations have notes, critical notes explaining that there's more than one way to translate his particular expression. So if you go to Exodus 3.14, when Moses says in verse 13, because if you go to Exodus 3.13, he says, when I go to the children of Israel, sons of Israel, and I say that the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now here's God's response in verse 14. What does he say in verse 14? I am who I am. Okay. And he Finish it though. I am, because then he goes on to say, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, you should have a note, the SV, telling you that the phrase I am can also mean I will be. There should be yes. there. Uh, you yes. say it, so read their note. Uh, or it says, or I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. Do you know why the, the difference or... <clears throat> or the option in yes. translating, why is that? Because the Hebrew verb is causative, it's future. I will be. So, all right, so I, I, I want to pause real quick before you get there. I just want to make sure, I, you know, we're not losing nobody. So, again, uh, Sam is, is, is explaining right now why going immediately or, <clears throat> or jumping straight to when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and comparing that to Exodus 3.13, because the original Hebrew language doesn't necessarily translate to him saying, I am. Now, in me reading this ESV, and I... And I just read uh, verse just 14. Yeah, there, no, yeah, yeah, 14. Yeah, I, yeah, I just read verse 14. And in reading verse 14, oh, no. man, oh man, I lost it. Hold up. All right, yeah, well, that's right. Exodus yeah. 3 14. There we go. And going to Exodus 3 14, and when it says that God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There is a footnote. There is a footnote that says that there is an option for it to not say what I just read to you. It could also say, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And Sam yes. was about to um, bring all and that. And that's why I'm there. saying, because the Hebrew can be translated either or, it's not conclusive that God is saying I am, right? 
It's not conclusive. So when something's not conclusive, you can't use it to try to demonstrate position, especially when you have people opposing your position who know this already. The reason why I'm aware of this is not because I'm a genius. It's because anti-Trinitarians threw this in my face. Hmm. They use this objection. So that's why I don't focus on Exodus 3.14, even though in Exodus 3.14, it is Jesus speaking, but for another reason. In Exodus 3.14, and we'll come back to Jesus and Abraham in a minute. It is Jesus speaking, but because if I ask the Trinitarian, who was speaking to Moses in the bush? They'll say God. I'll say, which person of the Godhead? They'll say the Father. No. Exodus 3, verse 2. Who is it? Exodus 3, verse 2. Who appeared to Moses and was speaking to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is the angel of the Lord, not the father who appeared and spoke to Moses as God. Now, let me do some explaining, because when I say the word angel, like the word person, the first thing that comes to a person's mind is a spirit creature with wings. Right. However, I want Christians to be biblical and think God's thoughts after him. The word angel in Hebrew, malach, or even in the Greek, angelos, doesn't mean a spirit creature with wings. That's artwork. Right. That's movies. The <laughs> right. word angel simply means messenger. Now, the context will determine whether it's a human messenger of God, like God says to Isaiah, you are my angel, meaning my messenger, go and speak, or a messenger from heaven. Now, if you read the Old Testament carefully, and this was an ancient belief of the church, meaning you can find in the writings of the early church writers, the fathers like Justin Martyr and others, there's a particular angel messenger in the Old Testament that appears to the patriarchs and the prophets sent to Israel, who is called God, who calls himself God, who's worshipped as God, and does things that only God can do. And that's who Moses is saying. Wow. Now, the evidence suggests and supports, and we can do this, because this also destroys modalism. If you can demonstrate that this angel is a divine person distinct from God the Father, and that this is Jesus in his pre-human existence, that means modalism is over. Because right. what does modalism teach? There is no eternal son, meaning the son right. as a person did not exist that eternally. Was born in birth. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But if I can show you that the person of the son existed in the Old Testament, distinct from the Father, so much for modalism. Right? Amen. So in this particular instance, and if we had time, I could unpack it. It's the angel who says to Moses, I will be what I be, will be. So it's irrelevant how you translate it because the speaker is still the angel and that angel becomes Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Right? Because again, I can show, if you want me to go, that's a, I can give you the evidence. It's up to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's up to you. All right. Yeah, yeah. We, All right. This far. Because in Malachi chapter three, verse one, we are told in Malachi three, one, the Lord who's coming to his temple is the angel of the covenant. Now, according to the New Testament, that's Jesus Christ. So just real, real quickly, one line of evidence, real quickly. One line of evidence, because I can show you that what is said of the angel said of Jesus, because they're the one and the same person. But for the sake of brevity, unless you want me to unpack it, I don't mind. Malachi 3, verse 1, read uh -huh. the prophecy there. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Before and you move on, let me explain what messenger means. See, this is where the English translations do you the service. It's the same word angel. It's malach. So literally, if I was going to translate it consistently, it says, behold, I send my angel ahead of me to prepare uh -huh. my way, right? Yes. Now read it. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger 
of the, the covenant. The angel of the covenant. The word messenger, again, don't take my word for it, folks. Go look at the Hebrew lexicons. It's the word malach. So it says the malach of the Brit, the covenant. The angel of the covenant. So now what does it say about this angel? The angel of the covenant, what happens to him? It says that it's in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So notice who's coming. The Lord, Ha'adan, that's Hebrew. Break it down. Okay, now watch what, what the prophecy says. Ha'adan is coming to his temple. What temple? The temple built in Jerusalem as a house of worship for God. So we know it's God coming because it says the Lord is coming to his temple. And the phrase Ha'adan, the Lord, is only used of Yahweh, Jehovah in the Old Testament. It's never used of a creature. So notice who this figure is. He's the Lord coming to his temple who's the angel of the covenant. Are wow. you catching it? Wow. Yeah. But now how do I know that's Jesus? Because I want you to go back and look at Malachi 3.1. It says, I will send a messenger to prepare for the coming of the Lord who comes to his temple, who's the angel of the covenant. So there are two entities that are going to show up. A messenger, an angel who's human, who's going to prepare people for the coming of the Lord to his temple. And that Lord is the angel of the covenant. Right? Now, according yeah. to the New Testament, guess who that angel is that was sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord? John the Baptist. Go to Mark right. 1, Mark 1, verses 2 to 4. Mark 1, verses 2 to 4. Who is the angel, the messenger of Malachi 3.1, sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord, the Lord who's coming to his temple, the Lord who's the angel of the covenant? Right there, Malachi 1, verses 2 to 4. In verse 2, he quotes Malachi 3.1. Mark chapter 1? Yep, and read verses 2 to 4. Re verses 2 all the way to 4. Uh, two all the way to four says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now pause, pause there. Who is the messenger of Malachi throne who is going to be sent according to Mark? Who was that messenger who was sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord? You read it. Oh, the messenger of Malachi 3.1. That because is that's to, in verse that 2. Is, right. That is to be sent. Yes. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you to prepare your way. According to John, who is that's that? The, that's, Mark, the, sorry. that's the angel of the Lord. No, no. See, brother. I don't, we're going to walk through this step by step, my player. Okay. Okay. I know Let's it's like, like booyah. It's like you're like, man, too much knowledge. Pet out. <laughs> Follow the argument. Why is John the Baptist mentioned in verse 4? John the Baptist is mentioned in verse 4 because he he was the one who like kind of like paved the way for this prophet who was supposed to ultimately come. So he's only preparing for a prophet and you didn't read verses 2 and 3. Why did Mark then quote Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3? Why did he just quote it? Why? Say, ask that one more time. Okay. We got this combobulated. Something happened right here. So let's regroup again. Okay. You read verses 2 to 3, which is quoting Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. But you completely ignored its relevance to verse 4. Why did Mark just quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the, the way, way of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And why did he quote Malachi 3.1? See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you to prepare your way. And then mention John the Baptist in the wilderness. What's the connection with John the Baptist in the wilderness and these two Old Testament prophecies? Well, what's the connection there? Well, 
John was baptizing in, he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. How does he fulfill what he just quoted from the Old Testament? So you're not connecting it. Exegete it for me, teacher. Imagine I'm your student. Uh, teacher, why did he just quote these Old Testament prophecies and mention John? Because John is the voice in the wilderness of Isaiah 40, verse 3, the messenger sent to prepare for his way. Do you now read Mark 1, 3 one more time. Mark 1.3 says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And where was John the Baptist in verse 4? He was in the wilderness. So do you make the connection? Yes, that John was the one in, oh, okay, I see what's, ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. So John was baptizing in the wilderness. In verse 3, we see that the voice of the one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And I see that voice. The voice of the Lord, you said. Who's that voice preparing people for the coming of the Lord? That's John. You got it. So then who's the messenger, verse 2, sent to prepare for your way? And verse 2. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. So who's that messenger come before your face to prepare for the way of the Lord? Who's that messenger? That's still John. You got it. But John prepared for Jesus. So now connect it. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. See, I knew that. But I but I got but I got I got all like this. (laughs) What's up, man? Okay. 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 Now now correct so people yeah can follow with us. Now 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 please uh please correct me if I if if I uh, say this wrong. So so New Testament teaching, even if you aren't like all deeply into all the theological arguments yeah. and everything, you know, we know that John prepared the way for Jesus. We know that. No doubt about that, it. That No doubt about it. Like that's, you know, even people who will disagree with the arguments that Sam is saying, you know, will, will, will still concede that point. Many of yes. them will. Now, why is that important in him breaking down these particular scriptures? Because when when the bible says that behold i send my messenger before your face talking about john who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord that is john preparing the way for jesus why is that important because this is this is uh quoting from old testament and when we and it even goes to uh malachi 3 1 where it's talking about the angel of the lord yep or it's talking about the angel of the Lord, and that ties into this particular passage. So we see that that is Jesus. So that is Jesus Bam, being represented it. in the Old Testament. Jesus is argue, the angel of the Lord, right? Jesus is the angel of the Lord. So Jesus, and going further back, I love how we got all the way over here when I asked you about John 8. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. You know, um, but the reason why that's relevant is because in exit is it exodus chapter three exodus chapter three it was the angel of the lord it was the angel it was the angel of the lord who told moses in the burning bush the angel of the lord is jesus that was jesus in the burning bush talking to moses you got it and even going further and let me know if i'm getting carried away yeah when jesus when Jesus is saying uh, to the Jews in John chapter eight, verses, uh, what is it? 56, 56 to 59. Yes. It's 56 to 59. And they're like, okay, well, you ain't even 50 years old, man. Like, what are you talking about? Like you yeah. a young man. Like Jesus was about my age at the time. It's like, what are you talking about? Jesus said before Abraham was, I existed. Exactly. I was, I always am. Always been. Always, Always been. been. So now, how do we know Jesus is an angel? Because the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 says there'll be two angels. 
an angel sent, because angel doesn't mean spirit creature, it can mean a human messenger. An angel sent to prepare for the Lord to come to his temple, and that Lord is the angel of the covenant. You just saw John the Baptist is that angel sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord to his temple as the angel of the covenant. But John the Baptist prepared for Jesus, which means Jesus is the Lord of Malachi 3.1. Jesus owns the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus is the angel of the covenant. In other words, what the New Testament is saying is Jesus is the human flesh of the angel of the covenant. The angel of the covenant, the angel of the Lord, became the man Jesus. Wow. So now, then, if he's the angel of the Lord, then who's talking to Moses? Jesus. Now, I have a, I have a, uh, answer this question as quickly as you can, but if you, if it has to be yeah. longer, go ahead. Sure. What is the difference between me asking you about, you know, John chapter eight, mm -hmm. you know, I understand why you started off, you know, at verse 30 to put it in context. And then we, and then when I made the comment about uh, many people saying Jesus says, I am before Abraham yes. was, I am. Can you just explain to us why us going from John 8 yes. to, to Genesis 3 to Exodus to Malachi to Mark, why is that different from when Hebrew Israelites are teaching from Scripture and you ask about Isaiah 40 and then the first thing they do is pull up Jeremiah chapter something and then uh, Galatians yeah, chapter yeah, something? The reason why it's different is because you made the connection Exodus 3. You said, when Jesus says, I am, that's, and I said, no, that's wrong. Right. Because if you're going to go to Exodus 3, it may work with Christians who don't study intently. And it's unfortunate Christians do not study intently and even ignore the footnotes provided by their own translations. I can say, see, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Exodus 3.14, God said, I am. See, Jesus is God. Now, this is the problem when Christians don't do enough evangelism as they're supposed to and interact with various groups. Because the sharp anti-Trinitarian says, no, friend. That's not what the Hebrew says. Even your Bible says it doesn't say I am. So now what are you going to do now? Pretend I'm the Jehovah Witness. And you told me, see, Jesus said I am. God's name in Exodus 3.14 is I am. I said, no, no, no. Here it is. The Hebrew can mean I will be. So God said I will be. Now prove to me Jesus claimed the name of God. When in Exodus, the Hebrew can be I will be. Right. You would have to go to the context of what he was saying, whether it is whether if whether the final words is I am or not the yeah. purpose the purpose of what Jesus was ultimately saying is before Abraham was I existed always yeah. will be there I was I'm so that eternal. means we don't need to connect to Exodus three fourteen right but Christians do and I said no you should amen there's no need to go to Exodus three fourteen because you only weaken your case to someone who's already studied to refute you and show you that. The Hebrew word ehyeh, because the phrase is ehyeh, ashir, ehyeh, ehyeh, can mean I will be or I am. And contextually, they'll say it makes more sense that he's saying I will be. I will be with you. I will be all that I promised to be in saving you and the promises yeah. I made. So, okay, well, there goes the I am connection. If it means I will be, then how does it connect with Jesus saying I am? There's no right. connection. Right. So we weaken the impact of Jesus' words by trying to connect it with Exodus 3.14 when the context is sufficient in of itself to show that he's saying, unlike Abraham who came into being, who has a point of origin, who's created, I've always been. I was there before he came into being. I was there when he came into being. And I continue to be long after he's dead. Yeah. So I, that's why I could see him because I've been there before he came into existence. I've been there before the earth. How do I know before the world was created? Because in John 17 verse 5, he says, and now, Father... 
John 17, verse 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me alongside yourself with the glory I had alongside of you before the world came into being. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And the reason why I wanted to uh, do that is because oftentimes on this show, I usually stop people. And I know that we went there because I made a comment and then I asked the questions and uh, and you even ultimately said, hold up, that's going to take us to a couple other places. But I said, go ahead and do that. Yeah. But I thought it was important for us to, uh, sure. um, to explain that difference. Now, I want to, before I throw some, some oneness objections at you, can you, can you give us an example of why we can read scripture and and deduce that the holy spirit is is god and not just oh, yeah. a force or a created angel yeah. of god most typically people who argue against the holy spirit argue against his personhood it's yes. rare to find people who would say the holy spirit is a creature i know there's black hebrews rights who say that the holy spirit is an angel certain of them not all of them because i know they're all over the map but typically what you're going to find is a denial that the Holy Spirit is a person. So if I'm dealing with people who deny the Holy Spirit is a person, then I show that he has personhood. He has personal characteristics. Why? Because he has emotions. He has a will. He can speak, can be spoken to, and he has a mind. So if you're asking me to show the Holy Spirit is a person, that's easily done. If you ask me to show he's God, that's easily done. So do you want me to first show that he's a person? Yes. Okay. That. All right. Now, I can show it from the Old and New Testaments, but let me just show you from some from the New Testament. Go to Romans 8, 26 to 27. All right. You said Romans 8? Yeah, Romans 8, 26 to 27. And here it shows he's not the Father, so he's not simply a mode of the Father. This also refutes modalism, this particular passage, because he's not a mode of the Father, a manifestation of the Father. He's a distinct person in fellowship with the Father. How do I know? Because we're read Romans 8, 26 to 27. It's good for me to have a book and not a computer. Sorry, it's not working. Even, even said Sam is tripping up my computer. It ain't just me. Because even computers are like getting rocked. Say, what's <laughs> up, bro? Where did that come from, man? Call me. And if it ain't working, let me know. <laughs> no, nah, I got I'll it. it. All, right. All right. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. How can the Spirit have a mind if he's not a person? Did you see that? I see it. And then, but notice it says, the one who knows the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. So how can the Holy Spirit be God the Father when God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit? And the Spirit intercedes in accord with the will of God the Father. Because there it's referring to God the Father. Finish it, and you'll see. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit the intercedes for the... Yes. Yeah, the Spirit How can the Holy Spirit know what God's will is if the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person from God and he has awareness? How can you be aware of what my will is if you're not a person? Well, modalism would say that the Holy Spirit is the Father. So that's how so you, the Holy but Spirit would you're know. Still not, you're not getting it. But then how does the Holy Spirit know the will of God and God knows the mind of the Spirit if they're the same self-person? Ask that question one more time. How can the Holy Spirit know the will of God and God know the mind of the Holy Spirit if it's the same self-person? Self, self so you're basically saying God is saying, I know my own mind and I know my own will. That's, how does that make my, sense? 
Well, my under, I'm just saying that my understanding of oneness teaching is that what, is that's what they would say. And that's why I'm refuting that nonsense. So now respond <laughs> as a oneness and then show me where I'm wrong. So you're basically saying it's God saying, I know my own mind in a different mode. And in that different mode, I know my own will. And that makes sense? I don't think so. That's why I don't subscribe to that teaching. So that's why I'm showing you how nonsensical it is because it pretty much turns God to be a deceiver because he's giving us the impression that he's different from the spirit and the spirit's different from him and they know one another. But in reality, it's the same self person in two different modes, play acting as if they're distinct persons who know each other. Yeah. Now, you know, we can just, you know, because you said that one of the uh, things that I've been reading on when is theology uh, is David K. Bernard's yeah. book. You know, and he, he has an interesting argument that I'd like to uh, sure, hear, 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 hear you respond to. So as it relates to the Holy Spirit in, in particular. So, yes. so Jesus called God the Father, his father, numerous times. You mm -hmm. know, I don't know anybody who disputes that. Sure. Now, when his teaching will say, well, the Holy Spirit is Jesus's father. And we can get that in at least two of the Gospels. For instance, Matthew yeah. chapter 1, verses yeah, 18 through 20. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear you respond to it. You said you responded to one nonsensical thing, so I thought of this one, so I want to ask you it. So, yeah, yeah I know what it is. Matthew one eighteen, Matthew one twenty, and Luke one thirty five. It says that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he fathered Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so nonsense when, because they assume that the sonship of Christ begins at Mary's conception, and that that's when he becomes the son. Who said that's when he became the son? Well, it it doesn't. So to say that the Holy Spirit conceived the physical body, human nature of Christ, is not the same thing as to say that the Holy Spirit brought Jesus into being as an actual person. Jesus is God's son before he became flesh. He's the son of the father. So what the spirit did was create the physical body and human nature of the son to take. So he is not the father of Jesus in the sense that he didn't make Jesus God's son because Jesus was already the son before the physical body was created by the spirit. Amen. Amen. So how does that make him God, the father? It doesn't. That's the whole point. Right. This is a distortion of Trinitarianism and distortion of what the Bible teaches because the assumption, because remember he's begging the question, he's assuming Jesus becomes the son when he's conceived in his mother's womb, because there was no son prior to that. Right. Right. But that's begging the question. That's assuming what he's yet to prove, that the Son did not exist eternally as the Son, distinct from the Father. So it's not that the Holy Spirit brought the Son into being. The Holy Spirit brought the physical body, human nature of the Son into being, that the Son took upon himself, but the Son was already there as the Father's Son before the Holy Spirit created his physical body, human nature. So where's the problem, modalist? Hmm. Well, good. That's where I go. That's why I'm a Trinitarian. So I don't got a response for you that. I don't know. Point, so <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's actually, I brought that up because uh, people may not be aware. I had two debates with a oneness minister, Stephen Ritchie, who's since deceased. Those two debates can be found on Acts 17 Apologetics, David Wood's channel. It was, does the Old Testament teach a Trinity? Does the New Testament teach Trinity? He tried to use those objections against me. And I'll let you decide how well he did. And by way of testimony, glory to God, one oneness contact me, said after the debates, by the grace of God's spirit, He's no longer a oneness. He's a Trinitarian. Oh, to God be the glory. To yep. God be the glory. Now, Hallelujah. now, why is, okay, so when I asked you about the Holy Spirit and you took us to Roman 8, okay, cool. So you taught us how the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy yes. Spirit is God, mm -hmm. and that led to us 
talking about how the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from the Father. And I even took you to Matthew and you responded to that. Okay, cool. Now, but what if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, well, why does this matter? Like, why does it matter if they subscribe to the teaching that there is one God who operates in three distinct co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy yes. Spirit, versus there is one God who operates in three modes as Father, and yeah. another mode is the Son, and another yeah. mode is the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because Jesus says that unless you believe he is who he is, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. Paul warns, Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 4, that there are people who will be preaching another Jesus from the one they preach, and present a different spirit from the one believers have received and a different gospel. And those are attempts by Satan to seduce you of your spiritual purity and mislead you and damn you. So why does it matter? Because you have to know God as he is and know the true God in order to be saved. That's the statements of Jesus and his apostles. It's Jesus who said in John 8, 24, unless you believe I am, you shall die in your sins. Believe I am what? What am I? And it's Paul who said, don't put up with just any Jesus. Because in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 4, he says, if someone comes and preaches another Jesus from the one we preached, or presents a different spirit from the one you received, or preaches a different gospel, you put up with it easily. And he says, don't, because that's Satan's attempt of seducing you from your spiritual purity and devotion to Christ. So it is vitally important to know the God that you worship, unless you're worshiping a false God that you think is a true God. And I can give you a, an analogy. Uh <clears throat> I don't know if, can I mention your, your wife and her name or, okay. What's her name? Raya. Okay. So Raya is six foot, two inches. She's blonde and she's got a six pack and she competes for Miss Olympia. That's your wife. <laughs> okay. What would you say to me? I would say that's not her. Why <laughs> not, just, man? It's, yeah, I'm you, using the same name. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Yeah. You, you get my point? Yeah. You're describing a different person. You're describing but wait, I use the name Raya though. What's wrong with you, man? Yeah, you use the name, you use the name Raya, but you're describing a different person. That is not the woman who I was in the, at the altar with. Would it's you be upset woman. if I insist that's who Raya is? Uh, I would insist that you are grossly sure she wouldn't appreciate it either. Oh, but when that comes to just human relationships, we're in, insistent and adamant, you know, who my wife is or my spouse is and make sure you know and don't misrepresent or mischaracterize or describe them incorrectly. But when it comes to God, that's okay. Mm. Got you. Got you. Now, now for those who might be listening and they might go, well, I've been taught one is theology. I'm not necessarily married to it, but that's what I've been taught. And and I'm listening to this episode with Veda and Sam and they're talking all these scriptures and it sounds really deep. You know, have I been, I feel like I'm saved. I think I'm saved, but mm -hmm. I, I, it's not like I'm married to this, but this is what I've been taught. Mm -hmm. Or is that person not saved? Like what's the difference between a person who is still learning versus a person who yeah. has heard and is actively rejecting. Yeah. Well, uh, you, the you truth. answered it. Because if someone's telling me, well, I'm hearing the Trinity and I see it's, it's airtight and it's exegetically irrefutable and, and I can see why modalism is a problem, but still insist to reject it, that person is no longer ignorant. He's rejecting something he knows because he wants to cling to a tradition because he was raised in that tradition and it may cost him too much, in other words, to go the other way. But then if we use that, if we, if we follow that argument, why waste your time reaching Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses? Because there are Muslims who are content with their Islam. 
They're Jehovah's Witnesses who are content with their Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. So why bother them? Let them be content in their religion. Why even preach the gospel to show them that they're in error and here's the true God if you're going to argue that way? Mm. Right? How many yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses are content with being Jehovah's Witnesses? Many. How many Mormons are content with being Mormons? Many. I feel good. I got that burning sensation in my bosom as a test that Mormonism is true. I'm happy with the God I serve. So would you allow that for them and allow them to use that excuse or you yeah. insist? It doesn't uh, matter what your feelings are. It doesn't matter what you think. Truth is truth, irrelevant, Amen. irrespective of whether you acknowledge it to be true or not. Right. So yeah. why is it now when it comes to modalism, you want to now excuse yourself and justify believing in it if it's a different God? Because it basically turns Jesus out to be a deceiver. Why do I keep saying that? Because the clear teaching of the Bible is the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit are not the same person or relationship, that they're different relationships, which is why they pray to one another, love one another, have communion with one another, and glorify the other. The clear reading is they're different relationships that are inseparable and in love with one another. But if modalism is true, they're not distinct persons and relationships. It's one person assuming different modes, giving us the impression that it's not the same person, but in reality it is, but in a different mode. And then it makes Jesus a liar when he says in John 8, 17 to 18. If you don't mind, go to John 8, 17, 18, but read 17 to 19. Watch here. So you end up with a God who's either deceiving us or misleading us or lying because he gives us the impression he's not one person when reality is, and then thereby misleading us into thinking that the Godhead consists of three. When in reality, it's not three persons, it's one God, one person in three modes. Because notice what it does to Jesus' words here in John 8, 17, 18, but read all the way to 19. See what it says here. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Then verse 19 says, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But here's my question. He said, the law demands, the law that God gave, you need two people. Now the Greek is actually two men, anthropoi, but that's fine. Two men to confirm a matter. Jesus says, I'm one such person, one man, and my father's another. Not if modalism is true. So did Jesus lie to them? I'm trying to think on off the fly, you know, an argument for oneness. Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Either you're going to say Jesus is so oh, only a wait, man. I got one. I got one. Go I got yeah. one. Okay. So, so in, in oneness teaching, you know, they, they might say that, that the father is not the son. It is the father that is in the son. So that so can is the still, son the same person as the father. The father is in the son yeah but the father's in me and i'm still a different person from the father right so is the son a different person from the father or is it a the mode of the father it's still the father in a different mode it it would still be two distinct people they would still yeah they would still be, be two no it's not distinct people it's one person in two modes it's like me saying to you look two men are required to confirm something i sam shimon the husband bear witness and i sam shimon the son bear witness see that's two Right. No, but, but what I was saying, what I was saying is if Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he is a distinct person, but 
but the God the Father is in him, they are two distinct okay. people. But I'm so saying that's still, but I'm saying be, that's still no, let's work go with there. No, 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 immortalism. So, immortalism is saying Jesus is just a man, a human person distinct from God the Father. Right, that's what I'm saying. It still doesn't work. So, but what I'm saying, let's go with it though. I want to go okay. to that argument. So, what, what you're telling me is it's not a mode of the Father, it is a human person that the Father indwells. Yes. Okay, so then. In what way is Jesus the mode of the Father then? In what way is Jesus? Because you just the told me he's a father. human person that the Father indwells. Right. But he's not a mode of the Father then, any more than I'm the mode of the Father because the Father indwells me. So is he right. a mode of the Father or is he a human person that the Father indwells? Mm. Well, that's why the arguments don't work. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> So, but if we take the assumption that these are two modes, the son is the human mode of the father, then Jesus lied. It's still one person, not two persons testify. Mm. Now, what about if I take you to Colossians 2, 9? Yes. You and, know, and him, the fullness of the Godhead was bodily. Okay. And, and of course, uh, the scripture is referring to Jesus and it says, for in him, for in Jesus dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay. A oneness of, you know, a teacher might say that that's clear the fullness of the godhead father son holy spirit dwells within yeah. jesus so you don't need three distinct persons you have the three persons there in jesus trinitarianism